we are in Genesis chapter 36, as we're going through the Bible on Wednesday nights, Genesis chapter 36 and 37 this evening. We are going to begin the life of Joseph tonight, which I'm really excited about. So, Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your promise that if we draw near to you, that you'll draw near to us. Thank you that you're our good shepherd, that you lead us by still waters and green pastures and you restore our soul. As we look at the life of Joseph and we see your hand upon our lives in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of daily experiences, that you're moving the puzzle pieces to put together your picture God, I pray that you would encourage hearts tonight and those that find themselves in the midst of challenge, in the midst of of difficulty. So would you really speak to us through the life of Joseph? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be looking at one of the greatest stories of all time. It's wonderful, it's deep, it's filled with drama, it's filled with pain. It is the life of Joseph. And as we study the life of Joseph, we're going to see God really establish and birth the nation of Israel through Joseph's efforts and through the suffering that he goes through. We're also going to see a wonderful portrayal of Christ. In the Old Testament, there's pictures that point to Jesus. There's foreshadowing of Jesus. And the life of Joseph really points to the life of Christ. But also we see that God's hand is upon the everyday experiences of life. As Joseph is going through these trials and these difficulties, he doesn't know where it's leading to, but God knows exactly what the story is going to be. If you have ever had this experience, you can relate if you're sitting down to do a puzzle. I am not a a very visual person. I can't see things before they are, so I struggle with puzzles. But we'll get together as a family every once in a while, and we'll do some puzzles, and I'll I'll get into the puzzles. And if me left my own devices, like a hundred-piece puzzle is hard enough. Then you get these puzzles that are like 600 pieces and 1,000 pieces, and you're trying to figure out where this piece fits into the the big picture. It looks like it's going to fit. It should fit. And then you start to... If I I force this, I'm going to break the whole thing, right? And our lives feel like that a lot of times, don't they? All these different puzzle pieces and difficult experiences and pits that we go through and we wonder how can this fit together for a larger picture and then usually some other member of the family or a friend goes oh yeah that fits right there boom right and so we're able to see that God is working things together for good even when other people make sinful choices even when we make sinful choices God's narrative and God's story is bigger than that Joseph sins, or excuse me, Joseph's brother sins, Potiphar's wife sins, and what Joseph is able to give testimony to at the end of his life is you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. So I hope you're encouraged over the next few weeks as we study the life of Joseph of how God's hand is upon our lives. I encourage you to read ahead, to study ahead. We're going to be in chapter 36 and 37, but really spend some time studying through the life of Joseph. Before we get to the life of Joseph, we've got to get through the genealogy of Esau. 
You're like, man, I didn't sign up for that, you know. We're going to go through the genealogy of Esau pretty quickly. So let's look at chapter 36, verse 1. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. So Esau is Jacob's brother. And Esau is going to become the people group of Edom, which is southeast of the Dead Sea, the Edomites. And so Esau and his descendants become very powerful and important, but we don't see their story tracked through the pages of Scripture like Jacob's descendants. Jacob's descendants will become the children of of Israel. So Esau's descendants drop off of the pages of Scripture. He marries wives from the daughters of Canaan. He doesn't marry believers. We see Esau's heart isn't turned towards uh, the Lord. So his descendants are listed, his sons are listed there in verse 2 to verse 5. And then we pick it up in verse 6. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all of his persons of his household, his cattle, and his animals, and all of his goods which he had gained into the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. And the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. So here Esau goes to Mount Seir, which is modern-day Lebanon. Also Petra, if you're familiar with that, is in this area of the world as well. So Jacob has his children born outside of Canaan but ventures back to the promised land. Esau's children are born in Canaan, but he chooses to leave the promised land. So that shows his heart. And then verse 9 through verse 14, we see the genealogy of Esau. And then in verse 15 to verse 19, the chiefs of Edom are listed. I'll let you peruse that in your evening reading, if you would like. And then verses 20 through 30 is the sons of Seir. 31 through 39, the kings of Edom. And then verses 40 through 43 is some more chiefs. We end chapter 36 at verse 43. Esau was the father of the Edomites. And Esau is no longer focused on at that point. That's the fastest I've ever gone through a chapter right there. So So chapter 37. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. It was quite a process for Jacob to get back to the promised land. Having fled Canaan because Esau wanted to kill him, now he comes back to Canaan. He's dwelling in Canaan where his father Abraham had dwelled, who was a foreigner or a stranger in the land. They haven't yet been given the promised land. This is the history of Jacob. And as it's the history of Jacob, it focuses on Joseph. God's story, his narrative, is going to be communicated through Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So Jacob had married Rachel, but then also Leah and there to handmaidens. So he has four wives. And here we see the sons of the handmaidens, Bilhah and Zilpah. So the family is really divided by who your mom is. And Rachel is the loved wife, which is Jacob, his favored wife. And Joseph's 
mom is Rachel, Benjamin's mom is Rachel. It's only those two boys that are the sons of Rachel. So he's hanging out with his half-brothers, and there's this tension in the family. And the half-brothers are doing something wrong, and as a 17-year-old, he decides to bring this report to dad. One of the things we find about Joseph as we're beginning his story, as we're introduced to him as a, as a teenager, is he's not walking in wisdom. This isn't the wisest thing to do. You know, he could probably, if he was taking time to factor things out, to go, I realize that there's some tension in the family here, and I'm not going to rat on my older brothers. But he chooses to go and share this with his father. Now, Israel, which is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all of his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made a tunic of many colors. Have you ever heard the expression golden boy? Sometimes in the family, there's a favored child and they become the golden child. Well, Joseph was the golden child. There was no questioning that, no no doubting about that. Dad made it really clear that he loved Joseph the most because Joseph was from Rachel and Benjamin is born much later and Rachel will die in childbirth with Benjamin. So he gets him with a, a coat of many colors, indicating that my favor, my affection, probably the majority of the inheritance, it's all gonna go to Joseph. We're gonna see how this plays out in the heart of the rest of the kids as we, we study tonight. But this is the folly of favoritism. One of the things that's amazing about the Lord is he's not a respecter of persons. So he doesn't have favorites. Those that trust in Christ are all his children. It's not like the Lord's going, well, this is my super child. And this is kind of my child that I don't pay attention to over here. We tend to perceive that of the Lord. We go, well, God must have loved Billy Graham more than he loved the rest of us. I really respect and admire uh, Billy Graham, but guess what? God doesn't put Billy Graham on this favoritism list. You might have those Christian leaders or authors or speakers that you really respect and deep down you think, well, God must love them more, right? No, he loves all of us. He's not a respecter of persons. Anyone who's willing to believe in Christ, anyone who says, I'm a sinner, I'm a whosoever, and Jesus died for me, and I'm receiving that free gift of grace, of salvation. God says, you're the child of God. How do we see Jesus in this verse? As Joseph points to Jesus, is both Joseph and Jesus were the object of the Father's special love. So one of the things that Joseph had going for him is that he knew he was loved by his dad. And that was seen in his coat of many many colors. What did Jesus know in his earthly life? He knew that he was loved by his father. When the father speaks audibly from heaven, he was always affirming the son. This is my beloved son. What do we know of Jesus? He's the only begotten, which means that God's special love and favor is, is upon Jesus. But because of our faith in Jesus, that favor that's been given to Christ has also come upon us. I hope that you know you can go through your life, not that you're God's favorite, but that you're loved by God. That we can wear the identity that we're loved through Christ. It's one thing for Joseph to have a coat of many colors, 
but it's another thing to know that we've been robed in Christ's righteousness. Amen? And so Jesus and Joseph had the special love of the Father. The love of the Father has been placed upon us. Notice what this does to the family, verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, it's wrong what Jacob is doing, what Israel is doing, but the brothers have the responsibility, even in the face of dad's wrongdoing, to choose to do what's right. In God's economy, we're never justified by returning evil for evil. Maybe in your family, there's a favorite, and you're not the favorite. Or maybe in the workplace, there's a favorite. The boss has a golden child that can do no wrong. And you feel justified, vindicated, validated in the fact of, I hate this sibling. I hate this coworker. I can't stand this neighbor that gets preferential treatment. And God holds us responsible to respond in a godly way, even when we're faced with ungodliness. The brothers don't have to respond this way. They don't have to respond in hatred towards Joseph, but they allow envy to get the best of them to the point where they can't even speak peaceably to Joseph. So if there's relationships where we can't even speak peaceably with someone, we at least have to ask the hard question, is there something in my heart that's preventing me from being able to treat them in a respectful manner? You know, is there something that's going on in their heart that's keeping them from being able to treat me in a respectful manner? But the brothers couldn't get along with Joseph because of this hatred and this envy that was inside of their heart. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. Again, Joseph, if he was walking in wisdom, he probably wouldn't have shared this dream with his brothers. We'll see why in verse 6. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf also arose and also stood upright. My sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Pretty clear. You boys are going to be bowing down to me. Now, I have an older brother. And we're great friends. Talked with him on the phone today. But that was not always the case. Very competitive growing up. Fighting was a pastime. These would have been words for war growing up, right? If I would have went to my older brothers, God gave me a dream. You're going to bow down to me, sucker, and it's going to be awesome, <laughs> right? There's already hatred here, and Joseph does have this dream from the Lord. This is exactly what's going to take place in the life of Joseph with his brothers. But did God intend for Joseph to share it with his brothers? Would maturity have said, I'm going to keep this in my heart and ponder it in my heart. This is going to be between me and the Lord. Maybe I'll talk this over with dad. So we see this youthfulness in Joseph as a 17-year-old. Verse 8, and his brothers said to him, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So there's this escalation of hatred. There's this multiplication of hatred in their hearts. The the hatred is starting to run wild. 
In verse 9, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. The message of this is clear. Not only are my 11 brothers, the 11 stars, going to bow down, but the sun and the moon, mom and dad, are going to bow down to me as well. And he definitely is unwise at this point. He's already seen what's happened when he shared the first dream. Now he gets the second dream, and he's got to send a group message out to all of his brothers. Say, hey guys, guess what? You're, you're going to bow down to me, and mom and dad are going to bow down to me as well. Now, can God speak to us through dreams? Absolutely. Should it be something that we're open to? I think so, because it's throughout Scripture. We see it with Joseph. We see it with Daniel. We see it with Mary's husband, Joseph, in the Gospels in the New Testament. So God may choose to speak to you through a dream. But should you test dreams? Absolutely. Because can you just have a dream that's a dream? Yeah. Could it be the pizza that you ate too late at night? You bet, right? So you've got to run your dream through Scripture and to say, you know, is it biblical? Does it line up with what we see in the written word of God? You never want a dream to trump the word of God in your life. Always settle upon the word of God. But there's many testimonies today of God revealing himself through dreams in the Arab world, in the Muslim world. For whatever reason, there's a lot of Muslims that are having dreams of Christ and are getting saved. And God's bringing them out of Islam into a born-again relationship with, with, with Jesus Christ. And so sometimes I think for us, we, we can tend to limit the Lord and say, well, well, God could never speak to me through a dream. He, he may want to speak to you uh, through a dream. But I do think we learn from Joseph's experience. If you think the Lord has spoken to you through a dream, just tuck it away in your heart and wait and see. Don't necessarily put it out on Facebook or Instagram or spread it through your family and friends and say, guess what? God spoke to me in a dream. And by the way, you bowed down to me, right? It's it's probably not going to go very good for you. Verse 11, and his brothers envied him, but his father kept this matter in mind. So envy is dangerous. Jealousy is, is dangerous. This is another thing that we see that Joseph and Jesus had in common. Jesus was killed because of, of envy. There's no wrongdoing on Christ's part, but the religious leaders were jealous of the following that Jesus had. We see Saul wanting to kill David. Why? Because of envy and jealousy. The hearts of the people were going after David instead of Saul. The ladies in the kingdom made a song that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands, and it was the top of the charts. It was number one on Spotify, top of iTunes, right? And Saul, every time he heard that song, he went homicidal. Like, I got to kill this guy. Started throwing spears at him. Envy is very dangerous in our lives. We can start to even look at other brothers and sisters in Christ and go, why do they have the coat of many colors? Why is everything going right in their job? Why is everything going perfect in their family? 
Why did they get to take this vacation when, when I can't afford one? We have to be very careful in this also in the world that we live in with social media because we only post the best on social media. It's not a real picture of anybody's life. You know, someone's not posting, hey, just had a fight with my wife. If you did that, you're going to have another fight with your wife. That's just stupid, right? You might be going, I'm just trying to be transparent and redeem social media. Well, no, you just put yourself in front of a semi-truck, right? So social media really is just, I'm going to post the best things, you know? If someone's sitting down and enjoying a, a, a nice meal, you don't know everything that happened to get to that meal, right? It may have been very stressful to, to get to, to that meal. Nobody's going to post and say, hey, I put this meal on the Almighty Visa card. I don't have the money for it, and I went into debt for it, and the interest rate is 17%. Have you ever seen that on social media, right? You don't, you don't know any of those details, right? All you see is this amazing photo where he goes, man, everything is perfect in their life. And you've got a few minutes to scroll through your phone. Usually when we're tired and we're weary and we're going, my life doesn't look like that. God, why, why don't you do that in, in my life? Well, one, remember it's not accurate. And two, is God doesn't want our hearts going to that place of envy. Well, what's the answer to envy? It's thankfulness. It's contentment. It's saying, Lord, thank you for what you're doing in, in my life. In verse 12, then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. So he said to him, here am I. All of the brothers are out working hard in Shechem. This is about 50 miles north of Canaan in the valley of Hebron, where Jacob is living, where Abraham had used to live. It's quite a journey with the sheep to go up to Shechem. Shechem was also the community where Simeon and Levi went and killed all of the males. And they're back in this, this region, working hard. And Joseph's not. Joseph, part of this coat of many colors is he doesn't have to do the manual labor that his, his brothers have to do. And then dad says, why don't you go check on your brother's work? <laughs> no, why don't you go see how those older brothers are, are doing with, with the flocks? And, and Joseph says, sure, I'm willing to go. Then he said to them, please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron and went to Shechem. This is the last goodbye that Joseph's going to have with his dad, Jacob, for 20 years. He's not going to see him again for for 20 years. Neither one of them have any idea that they're going to have a 20-year separation. Sometimes I think it, it helps us to live our lives understanding that we may not have five more years, that we may not have 10 more years, that those around us might not have five more months. And to really view every day as a gift that we get to enjoy from the Lord. And to take time to make it meaningful and to invest and to love one another. Now a certain man found him and there he was wandering in the field. 
So you just see this 17-year-old Joseph wandering around looking for his brothers with his coat of many colors. And and the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? So he said, I'm seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, they've departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. So this is 12 miles further north. So he's gone 50 miles. Now he goes 12 miles more in search of his, his brothers. Now, when they saw him afar off, even before he came near, they conspired against him to kill him. So here they see Joseph, and he's all by himself. He's got the coat of many colors, and he's walking towards them. And they go, this is our opportunity. And they begin to conspire amongst themselves of how they can kill Joseph. They've already been here in their heart. Now is the opportunity. It went from hatred to more hatred, to envy, to jealousy. And it's like, now's our chance. Now's our chance to be able to kill our brother. How does someone get to the point where they take someone else's life is they've been there for a while. I think most of the time it just doesn't happen. It's not just a a switch that that flips. It's something that's thought about. This hatred has the opportunity to to brew. That that envy has the opportunity to brew. And then they're like, here's the opportunity. I'm going to seize it. So we don't want hatred to have that opportunity to brew in our hearts. We don't want envy to have that opportunity to continue to, to grow in our hearts. In verse 19, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore and let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say, come, some wild beasts have devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. We're going to kill him and with him we're going to kill his dreams. And we'll just say that a wild beast has killed our brother. But Reuben, who's the oldest, heard it and delivered him out of their hands and said, let us now kill him. Let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So Reuben is still capable of compassion. And he decides to stand up for for Joseph and say, Let's just throw him into this pit right here, thinking, well, he'll die in the wilderness. That's what he was telling his brothers. And then when his brothers was gone, he was going to come back and rescue Joseph and bring him back to his father. This is where we see God's hand. The brothers could have easily have killed Joseph here, and it was the end of the story. And this is not one of the most wonderful stories ever told. This is a murder that has taken place. But God protects Joseph through his brother through his brother speaking up and saving Joseph's life. It's a puzzle piece. We can see that God is in the puzzle. God is in Reuben speaking up. And as we read tonight, is I want you to start to think about where have you seen God's hand in the puzzle piece of your life? You know, was there someone who stood up for you? Was there someone who gave you an opportunity? Was there a Reuben in your life that that made a huge difference? that maybe you wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that crossroads where someone like Reuben stood up on your behalf. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, 
the tunic of many colors that was on him. They're waiting to do this for years. They're waiting to get this stinking coat off of Joseph, this coat of many colors. And the first thing they do is they they strip this coat off of Joseph. Then they took him and they cast him into a pit and the pit was empty and there was no water in it. Joseph has these dreams, these visions of him being a leader in his family, of his mom and dad and brothers bowing down to him, him having authority over them. God is calling him. But yet the next thing is that he finds himself in a pit in the wilderness with no water, with his coat stripped off of him. Probably wondering, what in the world is God doing? Puzzled at God's hand upon his life. Joseph is going to get used to being in pits. This is not the last pit that he's going to be in. He goes from this pit to the pit of slavery. They don't kill him. They sell him as a slave. So imagine being a 17-year-old carted off to Egypt to be a slave in a country that you don't know, with customs that you don't understand, with a language that you have to learn. He's in the pit of slavery finds himself in Potiphar's house where he's falsely accused. He's in the pit of false accusation. Here he is, this young man, walking in integrity with the Lord, walking in the fear of the Lord, walking in sexual integrity, but then he's accused of raping Potiphar's wife and he finds himself in prison, another pit. God, where are those dreams? Where are those promises Where's me being a leader in my family? Here I was thrown in a pit in the wilderness. Here I am sold as a slave. Here I am now a prisoner. Then that leads to him being second in command to Pharaoh and the salvation of his family. Those dreams, those visions that he had are accomplished from a very strange path, a path of, of suffering. And God will work through the pits in our lives. And I wish that it weren't so, but we are going to experience pain. We're going to experience suffering. We're going to experience disappointment. And there is purpose in the pits. There is purpose in the pain. God's hand has not departed from Joseph's life. In fact, God is using this. Even though his brothers are committing evil, And meaning it for evil against Joseph, God in his sovereignty, God in his power is able to circumvent that and work that together for good and get Joseph right where he needs to be, which is sitting in a prison, which is going to lead to him being second in command to Pharaoh. Do we believe this in our lives? Do we believe it in our lives? That if someone commits evil against us, that they don't have the last word that God's hand is upon that and God can turn that and that God can use that together for good. Now, I think many times in our lives, over time, we're able to look back and see God's hand. Isn't that true? Are you able to look back at different points in your life and go, man, God's hand was on that. And in that season, it was painful and it was disappointing and I'm wondering where God was. I look back to some really formative years for me in high school, I was all into basketball 
my freshman year of high school, if you would ask me where my life was headed, it was going to be all things basketball, one way or another. I was going to play as long as I could, and then if I couldn't play anymore, I was going to coach. My dreams, my aspirations were, I'm going to be a coach and a PE teacher. You know, that's, that was the direction that I was headed, and it didn't have anything to do with the Lord. It had everything to do with Eric. My sophomore year of high school, things were going great along that plan. I was able to start on our varsity team, which I was really excited about. Midway through the season, having a great season, making the local newspaper, which was the big deal in in Southern Oregon, it all changed. One practice broke my ankle. And I was in the pits. And about that time in my life, God had gotten a hold of my heart. And I had one of our pastors from our church say, Eric, you've got some extra time on your hands. Why don't I stop by your house once a week and I'll teach you to play guitar? Basketball guys don't want to learn how to play guitar. At least not this basketball guy. There's nothing else that I could do. And so his name was Dave Cohen. And he would, on his way home from work, he'd take time from his busy schedule as a pastor, stop by my house, and he'd, he'd teach me how to play guitar. And right during that time, I started getting involved with children's ministry at my church and doing worship for kids and teaching Bible studies to to kids. God was starting to move my life in a different direction, and it began with me breaking my ankle. Then my junior year of high school, I had my lung collapse twice. By my senior year of high school, I was like, I think God's trying to redirect me here. I think there's something else that the Lord has for me. It's with another B. It's Bible instead of basketball, right? But how did the Lord do that? He, he did it through pain in my life to, to redirect my life into the path that, that he had for it. Now, could there have been an easier way? Probably. Was I listening? Probably not. So this is what the Lord did in my life. I think we can look back and go, not only has God directed us through pain, but he's shown us more about himself through the pain that we're going through, through the pits that we're experiencing. Joseph is growing as a man through all of this suffering. How does he become such a great leader by the end of the story? Because of the suffering that he went through. How was he able to be so gracious to his brothers through all that the Lord had, had taught him? God was developing Joseph's heart as he was going through this suffering. But it's very important in our lives in these times of suffering, even though we don't understand the puzzle pieces, to go, God, I do not feel your hand. I don't think Joseph at this point felt the loving, sovereign hand of God upon his life. He's saying, what in the world happened? This is so painful. This is so difficult. I'm being betrayed by my family. And as we go through suffering in our lives is to be able to say, Lord, I know that your hand is upon my life, that you are working things together for good, that you haven't left me and you haven't abandoned me. Today, Billy posted on the church's Facebook page and Instagram page, uh, do you need prayer? And there's been an overwhelming response. If you have the chance to read it, it's a good opportunity to pray for people in our church that are going through suffering. But I know that many of you are going through suffering. Many of you are going through, through difficulty. And as we journey through difficulty together to be able to say, I know that God's hand 
is upon my life. I know that God is in the puzzle, that he's in these pits that I'm going through. In verse 25, and they sat down to eat a meal. Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, palm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down uh, to Egypt. God's hand. Here's Joseph sitting in a pit, and here comes a company of Ishmaelites that are headed to Egypt. They're traitors. Ishmaelites are descendants of Abraham as well through Hagar. Isn't that interesting? Abraham's lack of faith, stepping outside of God's plan, having relationship with Hagar, resulting in the Ishmaelites. So Judah said to his brother, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let us seal him, sell him to the Ishmaelites. And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. Judah's saying, why would we kill him? We don't make any money off of him if we kill him. So let's just sell him to these traitors, and then we won't have blood upon our hands. Once again, this is God's hand. This is one of the puzzle pieces. God is intervening in the midst of this. And his brothers listened. The Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, and they took Joseph to Egypt. Reuben's plan could have easily succeeded. Reuben could have been able to come back and rescue Joseph and take Joseph back to be with his dad, but this wasn't God's plan. God's plan was for Joseph to be in Egypt for God's purposes. So here he goes. He's being sold as a slave. He's journeying to Egypt. He's sold for 20 pieces of silver. Does this remind you of anyone? Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. So God is painting a picture. Joseph's story is part of a bigger narrative, a bigger story, and that's the story of redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. The same is true in our lives. Our story is not about us. That's a news shock to us, isn't it? What? My story's not about me? As a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, what's our story about? It's the bigger picture of Jesus Christ and him crucified. So God will use joy and sorrow in our lives to paint a beautiful portrait to unbelievers where they see Jesus. We see Jesus through the life of Joseph, and hopefully people are able to look on our lives and see Jesus as well. Verse 29, then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, the lad is no more and I, where shall I go? He's saying, man, if Joseph's not safe, I'm not going to be safe. Dad's never going to hear the end of this if Joseph doesn't return home. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, we have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Brutal. Obviously, Jacob would know this coat. And he recognized it and said, it is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn in pieces. Jacob deceived who? His father Isaac. 
Jacob reaps what he sows. Laban deceives him. He thought he was marrying Rachel, but instead he got Leah. He got two for one when he only wanted one, right? Now, later in life, his own sons deceive him in the same way that he deceived his dad. Ouch. Jacob received back in his life what he had sowed tenfold. So be careful what we sow because we reap what we sow. In verse 34, then Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all of his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Jacob has good reason to mourn here. He believes that Joseph is dead. And he refuses comfort. And he says, I'm going to be mourning until I go to my grave. But Jacob doesn't have all the information. He doesn't have all the information. And I was really encouraged about this when I was studying this this afternoon. Is sometimes when we're mourning, we don't have all of the information. We don't know what God knows. We don't see what God sees. His ways are not our ways. If we knew everything that God knew, we would be convinced, God, you made the right decision. You made the right decision. Even Joseph, at the end of his life, could say, I've seen the hand of God. And this was exactly the the plan of God. So as we're mourning, we need to remember that God does have more information than we do, that he does see things that we don't see. That may have been a comfort to Jacob at the time. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and a captain of the guard. He lands as a slave to Potiphar, who's one of Pharaoh's officers. Potiphar's job is to be the captain of all of the guard. And Joseph is right where God wants him to be. So is God in the puzzle? Is he in the the puzzle of this story? Absolutely. We see God painting a, a bigger picture of Jesus through the suffering of Joseph. Joseph and Jesus had the special affection of the father. They're both rejected by their brothers. They're both sold for for silver. God is putting Joseph in the position that he needs him to be in order for him to save his family and establish Israel. So what's the application for us? Is God's using suffering in my life to paint a bigger picture of Christ. God uses suffering to teach us and also to be able to share with unbelievers. And I know that's difficult for us to swallow, but the Lord is using suffering to paint a bigger picture of Christ. And this is where the encouragement comes in, is God has the last word, not the people that have wronged us. God has the last word, not the suffering that's kicking our can. God is working these things together for good, for his glory, for his glory to be seen and to be able to be displayed. Kent Hughes put it this way in his commentary in the book of Genesis. He says, 
Ultimately and above all, the story of Joseph is about God working his will through everyday events of life. God is working his will through everyday events of life. So you walk in and your boss says, hey, I got some bad news and some bad news. What would you like first? I guess I'll take the bad news. Well, come July 1st, we don't have a job here for you anymore. Ultimately, that's God's will. You can look at that one or two ways and you can overanalyze it and go, why does my coworker still have a job and I don't have a job? At the end of the day, God's moving you on, not your boss. God is the one who has the last word. When you're sitting at the mechanic shop and they're like, that'll be $666.66. You are the Antichrist. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus, right? You're in the will of God. That's exactly where God has you to be. We don't know why. We don't know what he's doing in that situation. But the Lord has allowed that circumstance. He's steering our life through everyday things that that take place. And so it brings us great comfort as we study the life of Joseph to go, you know what? I'm ultimately not in control of my life, though I'm accountable for my life. Does that make sense? I'm accountable to God for the decisions that I make, but I'm not in control of my life. God is the one who is in control. And also those around me who do wrong against me, they're not the ones who have the last word. Joseph's brothers don't get the last word here. God's able to circumvent the evil that they've done. God doesn't approve of the evil. God's not for slavery. God's not for the betrayal that the brothers did. But God says, I'm not surprised by this. I'm gonna put Joseph right where I need him to be in Potiphar's house, where he's going to get falsely accused. Potiphar's wife doesn't have the last word. Put him in prison. And then, okay, I've got him right where I want him to be. In prison? Really? And this is the place then that God is going to raise him up to be second in command to Pharaoh. Trust the Lord. Trust him. He is trustworthy. So let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are in control of our lives. And that's something that we believe in our minds, but it's difficult for us to accept in our hearts. And as we go through disappointing experiences in life, we go through our own pits to know that you haven't left us and that you haven't abandoned us. I pray for those tonight that are right in the midst of a trial, right in the midst of a, of a difficulty. God, would you meet them? and Would you encourage them? Would you be their daily bread just to sustain them moment by moment? And Lord, we thank you that even when others do evil to us, that that hasn't circumvented your hand or circumvented your plan. You don't, you don't approve of it, but you're able to take what others have meant for evil and use it together for good. God, we surrender our lives to you. We just acknowledge to you that our lives do not belong to us. Lord, help us to be able to trust you. Even in communion tonight, would you meet us in that place of trust?